Thank you very, very, let's say it one more time, very much for joining us. Uh, Leon and I today are with the wonderful Chris Nixon, the last of the Trinity. We had Ollie on, we had Roger on from Smack. Chris Nixon, this is quite the bio. Uh, he is our first natal Kiwi. I think that's worth mentioning. We might even get into talking about the Rugby World Cup. He is a very respected intensivist at a very respected ICU, namely the Alfred in Melbourne. He's a clinical associate professor at Monash. And this is the interesting stuff. He is the progenitor of so much foam. So many of the big podcasts were in utter awe and aware, aware of our own littleness. Life in the fast lane, rage, resuscitatology, airway courses. And the first time I met Chris, he was like the Pied Piper at a conference where people were following him around, hanging on his every word. He defies Archimedes' principle. This man displaces a lot of water. Uh, Leon, I've gushed. <laughs> it's your turn to gush now. Oh my goodness, man. We've had some big fish on, but this time we have a whale. Oh, Chris Nixon. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. He's blushing. I have never been described as a whale before, so that's, that's fantastic. I, I have Thanks a, for having me. I, hey, I've got a picture of you wearing a hockey jersey and you were filling it out. I just remember that. Leon, over you, to you. You missed one thing. He's a father of three. He is a father of three. Uh, is it Chris Nixon's sons or Chris Nixon's sons and daughters? <laughs> sons and mostly daughters, yeah. Okay. Uh, I have... Uh, what translates in uh, the word, there's a word in Norwegian for it, but it's when you have a, a, a baby sometime after the, the older children and it literally translates as after blob. Ooh. So uh, I have one of those. In Britain, they talk about heirs and spares. I sure <laughs> we wouldn't use such language. Leon, enough of this chitter chatter. Well, I'm going to start with a tongue in cheek question here. Your Twitter handle, precordial thump. Is it something you've done? Should we be doing it? Um, that's a good one. <laughs> the, I uh, have done three precordial thumps in my career. Uh, one that was successful, uh, one that wasn't, and one that wasn't indicated, which was... Uh, <laughs> was that in the pub? <laughs> a, a dialysis patient who was asleep in the resus bay with um, what looked to me like... Um, VT, this is quite early in my training, uh, but actually turned out to be just very big uh, T waves that looked a lot like the QRS complexes. And um, anyway, he, he woke up. Um, and when I first started at the Alfred as a registrar, one of my bosses, Steve Bernard, who's uh, very well known in the resuscitation world, saw my email and he said, uh, no, we're not, we can't be doing that now. Here's my uh, study on it. And my response was, it's user-dependent. One of my med school classmates rushed into a room to perform a precordial thump, was told it was bed four, and then only after he'd delivered the precordial thump was he told it was bed four in a different unit. So that was a successful one then. <laughs> Patient woke up. All right, back on the main highway. <laughs> yeah, let's pivot to medical education. Are we training intensivists for the future? So, Chris, I'm going to start with one of your quotes. I think, I think this is your quote. Uh, I'm going to read it, and you tell me if it is. But um, you may or may not have said, we need capabilities for the future, not just competencies of the past. Explain. Yeah, so I have used that line, but I can't remember if I stole it from somewhere <laughs> else or, or, or if it was something I came up with. Uh, but I guess when you look at, um, I guess when I look at my training and I look at what exists in, say, the syllabus of most colleges, certainly in Australia, it all looks like it's looking backwards. Um, and 
one thing's for sure, uh, the way we do medicine now is different to 10, 15, 20 years ago, and it's going to be probably even more different in the future. As I went through my training, I was very much focused on getting all this technical knowledge and expertise and trying to make myself this individual that could, you know, be called on in a crisis, could do all of these things. And then as I become a consultant, I realized that I'm a very small cog in a much bigger wheel and that uh, there's much more bang for my buck in being able to get my team to work effectively, um, have this concept of creative uh, collective competence where everyone's doing their tasks adequately in individually, but then synergistically are working together to make sure we don't drop the ball for the patient. You know, all the tough stuff in medicine is all the stuff that we need to do in the future. How do we make it more patient-centred? How do we um, confront the affordability crisis in healthcare that I think we're facing universally around the world that is investing loads and loads of money in people who train for many, many years to be able to uh, do a whole wide range of things, always the way to do it. So, and, you know, leadership ultimately is really critical now at all levels of the healthcare system because that's how we're going to move forward. And another thing that came out, I guess, particularly with the pandemic, I think emphasised this, it was a concept that was definitely in my mind beforehand, but this need to be redeployable uh, as healthcare needs change. And one of the, the key concepts is that the more specialist you become or the more specialist you are, the less real need there is for you to actually be a doctor uh, because uh, what the real skill set of, I think, a doctor is, is to um, deal with uncertainty, to have seen a whole lot of different stuff, and it's where you kind of need to use your intuition to deal with the unknown um, and where things can be very much prescribed, evidence-based, protocolized, highly specialized, then I think you can get technicians who are supported by by doctors. And that's probably alienated um, 90% of the listeners uh, or people in medicine. But anyway. We love the 10% who've stayed on though. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so you, you've alluded a lot to why change is necessary. Um, you've also given us a bit of a glimpse of what you think the intensives of the future should look like, albeit probably in, 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 in less words that you would have loved to. But how do we get there? Yeah, that, that, that's a real challenge, isn't it? Um, and I think there's been a lot of curriculum reform around the world. But ultimately, we're also stuck with this situation where education's pretty underfunded in healthcare globally, is my understanding. It's something like uh, the numbers I've seen quoted is about 2% of global healthcare spending is on education, which when you think about healthcare, is it's basically all kind of talent driven it's all based on individuals being able to do their jobs that sounds pretty ridiculous when you compare it to say uh, sports or astronauts or something like that and I think we need to really step back and decide what an intensivist is going to be and from that point figure out how you how you create it but one of the real challenges and I know that uh, you guys have had this in Canada is this um, transition to competency-based medical education. I think we're lagging on on that front. 
Um, and it's conceptually, I think, fantastic. But I, you know, I'm well aware that there's lots of logistical issues. I guess issues with the psychometrics of it, the number of data points you need to get to get people through. And you can probably tell me more about that. But um, I, one of the other issues we have in Australia, in particular, is that we're very fragmented. So medical schools are kind of in one silo. The colleges, of which you guys have one, I think, for your entire country, but we have one for every specialty. Uh, and then the hospital and the governments were all totally different. So there's no regulation of the pipeline, really, of doctors coming through and how we coordinate those um, and know where it's all going to fit. So I have uh, not answered your question because I don't really know the answer. Well, yeah, but you've definitely question the question. So this is good. We're off to the races. There is a danger that we sort of hit the target and miss the point. And I think that's one of the things about education. You know, this this former British public schoolboy was taught that education is everything you've that's left over once you've forgotten what we taught you. In other words, it's values and it's ability to deal with cognitive dissonance and work within a team. And it's actually just, uh, you know, I've just come from a day on the ICU it's the non-technical factors more than the technical factors, but even within the non-technical factors, it's not just the crisis resource management that you and I got to know each other through. It's actually just getting stuff done, getting unwilling people to work together, to communicate, to close the loop and things of that sort. And that is an incredibly difficult thing to teach except through, in this country, hockey teams and growing up on the farm and this sort of stuff. And that's that's very difficult in the rarefied environment of teaching hospitals. Let me try and be a little bit provocative. Have uh, You know, this is leading me into the educationalists. You know, have they enhanced learning or have they stuffed it up? Have they made it all about using the word pedagogy every 15 seconds and sending out evaluations rather than their overall impressions? Uh, so that, that's a good question. And I think it's uh, probably a bit of both with most of these things. Um, I know that people like uh, Jonathan Sherbineau have uh, really kind of built up this concept many years ago of the clinician educator, having a person with a foot in both realms. And that, that's something that we've been trying to develop in Australia as well now. Uh, one of the projects I'm involved in is called the Clinician Educator Incubator. And what we're trying to do is a, a gr- at the grassroots level, build up a community of um, clinicians. So we work in the real world. We look after patients. We know what's happening at the front line. But we also un- uh, try and understand a little bit about what the educators are trying to communicate as well and hopefully form a bridge between the two. Uh, but I think what you're saying is is really key. Um, all, all the stuff I do in teaching, and I, you know, run a bunch of teaching sessions and things like that. That it's just a drop in the water compared to what actually happens in the workplace. And I think that's what we really need to understand more is about how we actually learn while we're working. Um, what's actually happening in the workplace is all that stuff like the hidden curriculum stuff, the way culture in the workplace affects what we do. And that actually drowns out almost anything else that we do. And then if you're having something like a, an EPA or an entrustable professional activity that's based around things like professionalism, communication, they're very hard to sort of, well, even define what's what that's going to look like and then how do you actually assess it. So um, even when things conceptually make sense, it can be very diff- difficult to operationalise. 
Um, but I, I'm sure you want to ask me something else. No, no, I, I like where we're going with all of this. And by the way, I'm going to use this as a gratuitous plug because your wonderful college of intensive care medicine has allowed you, Vic Brazel, and even little me to be involved in some of the discussions about this at the at the meeting on the Gold Coast. So if people are wondering about a conference to go to, go to that one. And this, uh, your expertise and Vic's expertise and my lack of expertise and over-exuberance will be on display. No, no one's going to want to go to the Gold Coast. I mean, <laughs> what a terrible place. Well, <laughs> no kidding. Wouldn't they much rather be in Edmonton, Alberta? So my next question, and to try and be a little bit provocative and a little bit not, are these learning hospitals or teaching hospitals? Because I'm I feel like there's an enormous amount of clinical material if you lean into it. And I'm not being world weary, I promise you, because I was a lousy student. But there is a sort of sense that you almost have to hold up a sign saying, I'm teaching now. And it has to occur in a classroom for people to fully acknowledge that they're being taught rather than just learning. Am I, have I, is the apprenticeship model changed or am I just a miserable old git at this point in my career? You both could be right. Yeah, <laughs> no comment. <laughs> the, the, uh, I, I actually think you're right, though, in that um, I remember a quote that really stuck with me when I was um, uh, doing some study on health professions education was uh, a chap called Biggs who was in Hong Kong. He said, um, uh, learning is what the learner does. And it uh, goes also, I think Albert Einstein has a quote about just setting up the conditions to learn and then it's really all all about what the learner does from there. And I, so I think that's very true. And one thing's for sure, you can't learn medicine without exposure to patients. There's plenty of those quotes related to that too. Um, but we do need to create the conditions uh, to learn. And I think an important part of that is still the bedside mentor. Mm-hmm. And that's increasingly challenging. So for instance, in where, where I work, we have um, something like 40 FTE intensivists. So, um, well, maybe not FTEs, but we have 40 different intensivists. And then we have, uh, you know, many more trainees than that at varying different levels. And you might only work with them once in the year, to be honest, depending on the way your shifts work. And it makes it very hard to develop those relationships to being a bedside mentor, to track feedback conversations you know one of the problems with why they're so tricky is that they're often in isolation whereas they should be things that build towards a goal and through a two-way communication that's a repetitive cycle and you know you're understanding more about your learner and you're helping develop them and so i think those things are really really hard in the way that medicine works now and i i don't see that going back um, so we do need to, there's probably a bit of room for disruptive innovation in the space. Uh, but at the moment, I guess what we're trying to do is collect lots of different data points uh, from many different perspectives and try and use that to guide learners as they as they progress through their training. But it you know, there's definitely some stuff about the old days that was that was good. So let's pick up on guide learners in the old days. You know, Andrew Davies, Mastering Intensive Care is a fabulous podcast. Your interview on that is fabulous. And Tubbs, a man I've never met but desperately want to, his interview on that was fabulous. And there was a little bit of an old school teaching people how to think, not just what to think. And and 
teaching people understanding and meaning and synthesis rather than just a fire hose worth of information, good, bad, and ugly. You know, we're in the information age. You, you've played a massive role in foam. By the way, I am curious. Did, did you initiate the term? It's, it's attributed to somebody staring at the foam in their pint in Dublin, and I always assumed it was you, Chris. <laughs> no, no, no. It was uh, uh, my uh, good friend and colleague and actual uh, Life in the Farsight mentor, Mike Cadogan. Well, he was, uh, it, it literally bubbled up out of a pint of Guinness. Yep. Well, good for him. But anyway, most of our teaching, uh, the place where I work, is focused on residents rather than fellows, rather than staff. And most of it is factually based almost as the sort of this is how you get on the ICU bus. You have to learn all of these facts. We'll do the other stuff later, but then, you know, life gets in the way. Are you doing any better in Australia? I'm a huge admirer of what I think critical care is in Oz. Are you better at teaching people critical thinking? I don't just mean how to analyze a journal article. And and equally, how to become, let's use all the buzzwords, lifelong learners. Because there isn't a huge impetus requirement mandate to keep on learning and other than your own shame other than your own sense of wanting to be competent yeah so uh, i think that a lot of the times we um we succeed as a result of uh, the commitment of individuals working within a, a system that possibly isn't really designed as well as it should be to to achieve the goals and i think that um we would share similar problems to probably every other country around the world with with regards to this. And part of it is, you know, you look at how well assessments are structured. We have high stakes exams that require a lot of detailed factual knowledge and are not really the best way to uh, assess all these, I guess, soft skills that are the difficult skills in terms of uh, communicating decision-making in complex situations where there's uncertainty, all of these things. I think there's really no no better way than to learn that actually at the bedside with the bedside mentor. And again, that really just comes down to where you're working, who you're working with, and the effort of individuals in that workplace. Now, you had a comment about uh, when we're working we have all these challenges with collaboration. I remember you, you mentioned something about the hockey teams and I think you're actually 100% right there. And one of the things that potentially is going to rescue us uh, as we go through in the future, when you look at these new competencies and challenges that uh, revolve around digital literacy, you know, as we've seen electronic health records come in, I've uh, started to feel like I'm a little bit superfluous and uh, struggling to keep up with people coming through. And then there's other aspects to do with working in teams, collaboration, inclusivity. That's all happening in primary school now. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I listen to my kids talk. They know all about growth mindset. They uh, know all about, you know, cognitive biases, uh, all the stuff that I didn't learn until my late 20s. And uh, in a way that that may happen regardless of what we do. But that's probably not the best you know, just being passive about it probably isn't the best way. You make a very, very good point. I'm going to flip it over to Leon in a second. But with your kids in mind, do they give you reassurance in the future that we'll still put the patient at the center rather than the computer at the center? Because I do worry a lot of us are doctoring and nursing the computer screen, you know, not even looking at the patient. 
trying to get the mu boxemic, trying to get all the numbers looking good and trying to get the note to look pretty rather than actually, I don't care how old fashioned this sounds, holding the patient's hand and actually inquiring what they want out of the system. You know, very few people come to the hospital to find out what their troponin is. They come to get relief from their chest pain. Uh, another really great point, and certainly um, I remember our transition to electronic health records, it was uh, incredibly disruptive and you just saw this uh, magnetic attraction of the of the computer screens and that you get almost do your ward around and forget and miss out the patient um and i think this goes back to two things one that the you know we have this ideal of patient-centered care but particularly in icus i mean patients often there's a tendency for them to be um, more passive participants and, uh, you know, there's a lot of work that needs to be done to how we integrate families, uh, patients and their families more into being involved in guiding their care. And a lot of, a lot of that is resource constrained. And then um, you already mentioned mastering intensive care, but I would say I've, I learned more about, and even as a consultant, having done ward rounds, learned more about how to run ward rounds from that podcast because, Andrew Davies always asks people that question, how do you do your ward round? And as I went through my training, I mean, a lot of the time the ward round was kind of a thing that I just wanted to get out of the way so that I could get on and see new sick patients. Now I see it as like we need to be really good at two procedures as an intensivist. One is the ward round and one is the family meeting and the rest you know, you can even find other people to do that if you really need to. But how much emphasis on on those do we actually have in our training and figuring out how to do them well? Those are very good points. Um, I want to continue the conversation about bedside teaching. I mean, I can't think of a single thing that's going to put the, the patient more at the center than having, you know, a senior clinician and a bunch of uh, trainees around them speaking about the patient. I'm a huge fan of the Socratic method of teaching as well. We, you know, teaching by questioning. I guess I'm really interested to know what your thoughts are on this. How do you sort of keep that I hate the term safe, but I know that there's a lot of criticism about that because people feel victimized, they perhaps feel shamed, et cetera, et cetera, during, during such a, a, you know, method of teaching. How do we, how do we bring that back and keep it, you know, keep it safe, I guess? Yeah. Uh, so I think psychological safety is uh, a really critical um, thing that we have to achieve in intensive care because I, I know as a, intensivist, I'm very reliant on my juniors and also my nursing staff to uh, speak up when I miss something, which mm-hmm. happens about once every two minutes. Um, and uh, and it, so, that, so that's really important. But it is also important that our learners are challenged. You know, they're going to they're gonna grow when they're operating on the on kind of the edge of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. So, but we do need to scaffold that to use a uh, uh, Vygotsky's term. And so part of that is one, a couple of things that I like to do is right at the outset before the ward round starts is check in with my learners what their learning needs are, where um, where they're up to in their training and say, hey, these are the things that we're going to be looking out for and uh, let people know that this might be my way of teaching or mm-hmm. running the ward round so that things aren't a surprise in advance. Then the other key thing is role modeling as we go through it. I get asked a lot of questions and I just don't know the answer to them. And uh, and to acknowledge that that's okay, uh, that it's also okay to make mistakes and that's how we learn, but then it's how we respond to that mm-hmm. and then we move on. 
And so I would ask lots of lots of questions. And, you know, I, I think you've also just got to be, we all will ask questions that maybe don't quite hit the mark or aren't at the at the right level. And I think just acknowledge, you know, that you I asked that wrong and uh, work your way back to it. But I think it's it's bigger than just the the one question. And obviously, we don't want to be pimping and just trying to mm. keep mm. hammering people till we find stuff that they don't know. Uh, it needs to be contextually relevant mm-hmm. um, and uh, a, and meet the learners' needs. And I think most learners are going to appreciate that. You're talking about meeting the the learners' needs and so on, <clears throat> but I've often found on ward rounds, it, you know, it's, it, it's sometimes a bit of an adventure because you're not sure <laughs> always what you're going to run into, and and I think those are very teachable moments as well, you know, and and speaking about things that you didn't expect, perhaps a low platelet count or something, and it's a bit of a surprise on the ward round, so. Um, you know, I remember my training, some of the stuff that I remember the best were those very things that the professor pointed out and said, well, maybe you need to go read a bit about this, <laughs> you know. Um, so so there's there's something to say for that little bit of adrenaline rush as well that imprints things on your memory. And and I mean, I think you bring a good, a very good point that it's all about just that premise of, listen, um, we, we're going to be teaching this way. I'm not trying to make a fool out of you, but I, this is this is one of the be- preferred ways i guess um, i don't know yeah i i've always wondered whether we just have uh rose tinted glasses about this stuff that that in fact we were more intimidated and scared and not exactly in the best frame of mind to learn and mm-hmm. and you know we've sort of rolled the clock forward and thought well good goodness me it was hard but that's exactly what i needed at the time and i, I in my st- day and i've gone mm-hmm. backwards and forwards through that one yeah uh chris we've we've actually talked quite a bit on this podcast about communication being one of the most important or dangerous procedures in medicine. And I think you've emphasized that point beautifully. Can I go back to ward rounds for a second? Because we've talked about the computer. I worry that we've got legible bollocks now, you know, that we've got, yes, anyone can read it, but it's either cut and pasted from the old note or it's just data with no information and no real meaning or no narrative at the end. Again, let's say I'm wrong. Can are we teaching that? Because because you know what, I might be better off on a week teaching how to write a narrative note or summarize a very complex patient than I am actually teaching about advanced aspects of the ventilator, especially for somebody doing ICU once and not returning to ventilators again in their career. Have, does this resonate? Have you addressed this? Can it be addressed? Oh yeah, it totally resonates. And um, as you mentioned, it, I was starting to think the same thing that. Uh, uh, it's it's amazing how when you just explore what you do in your daily work that you can just find the, these little gaps. And I guess it, I remember when I was a medical student and you get a neurology consult, the impression uh, section of that where they synthesise it all together could maybe run for sort of one to two pages back then. <laughs> and, and, and now it just says MRI. And... Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and there's so much cutting and pasting because, you know, there's time pressure that you need to, you just take from this. And then it's just, I totally agree that I often say to people, look, that I don't really care about any of that, um, the observations and things like that, because that can all be pulled out of the record. Mm-hmm. It's all recorded in real time. But what we really need is to say what we think's going on and what our plan is and make sure that that's legible and, um, and intelligible to the rest of our team. So uh, in our training, one of the looming bugbears of 
our ICU training is what's called the hot case in the part two exam. And th this is basically involves spending 10 minutes with a patient with two examiners in front of you, and then you have 10 minutes to discuss it. And you might get a question like, uh, examine this patient and tell me your plan for the next 24 hours, or there could be various other questions. It's very intimidating because you don't know anything about this patient before you go in and you have to synthesize it. And uh, But what's interesting is that you can actually pick up 90% of your information by standing there for two minutes mm -hmm. and looking around the room. Mm -hmm. And then what is most critical is actually how you, uh, your opening statement and how you synthesize that. So a thing that I often like to do at the end of seeing a patient on the ward round is ask my trainee who's going to be preparing for this to say, give me your hot case opening statement. And that way the whole team is listening to it. The nurse is also listening to it. And then I can check that they understand what's going on and uh, maybe add some nuance or some differences that, that, that I think. And that is, synthesis is definitely what we're there for, you know, as intensivists. That's our... Uh, cognitive skill set that we're putting things together, we're understanding what's going on in the big picture, and we're using that to anticipate what's going to happen next and map the plan forward. And if we're not doing that, uh, we're really not doing our job because that's what we're there for. Yeah, synthesis and distillation. I think you're absolutely right. Now, you're talking about the future, preparing for the future. How are you going to feel as a Kiwi this weekend if Ireland, Northern Hemisphere team, therefore I'll flip my loyalties very, very quickly, uh, beats your beloved All Blacks. Or for that matter, given that colleagues of yours from Melbourne might be listening to this, uh, the Bledisloe Cup, who do you support? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, Bledisloe, even though I'm a quasi now, I've got two, quasi. Well, nice. I like at least it. two passports. But um, the, uh, well, the Bledisloe Cup's a no-brainer. I mean, you don't stop supporting the All Blacks. Uh, the, you know, we had a good run against Ireland for 100 years or so with no defeats, but um, times have changed. And uh, no, it makes it much more interesting and, um, you know, uh, made the best team win. And uh, Boom. they... Uh, yes. <laughs> Yay, sports. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's interesting, not how Leon feels about the South Africa-France game. Yikes. <laughs> yeah, well, we all know who's going to win that one. The best of the two teams, isn't it? That's right. Allez, les bleus. <laughs> Well, you know, this was such an amazing chat. Thank you so much. I think uh, we've we've solved way more than just medical education and what the future intensivist look looks like and how we're going to get there. But it was a delightful, delightful chat. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. No, th thank you so much. And yeah, look, I don't have any solutions to any of this. Hopefully, it um, sparks a few ideas in people's mind. The you know the key to having a good idea is to have lots of ideas and so the more people that are thinking about things and um, uh, thinking about how we can progress things I think is the way forward so I've already come away with a few things that maybe I need to work on based on this discussion. See you on the Gold Coast Chris, you and others. Yeah. Take care, see you later guys.